Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 24th. We continue our study of the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. Today, we're looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read that in the ESV. Again, First Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It's a life pleasing to God. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called for us impure, or called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards no man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We're picking back up at the beginning of chapter four, and we need to remember the historical setting. Silas and Timothy had preached the gospel and Thessalonica around 40, 80, 49, or 50, and this new church was formed, comprised of a small group of Jews, a large number of, uh, of Greeks, and several prominent women, wives of the elite men of the city. But then persecution came from both the Jewish leadership and from city authorities, and Paul had to flee in the middle of the night. And a few months later, Paul was in Athens, and he was worried about these new believers in Thessalonica. So he sent Timothy on a, on a long and a very dangerous journey to check on them. So Timothy's come back with this really excellent report. The new Christians, they're, they're standing fast in the Lord despite persecution and despite the lack of mature leadership. And this letter is Paul's response to Timothy's report. For the better part of the first three chapters, he's been looking back to his initial visit and rejoicing in the way that they had embraced the gospel, as well as defending himself against the smear campaign that were, was waged by his opponents by reminding the Thessalonians how he had conducted himself among them. And he is also explaining his prolonged absence from them. And so now in chapter four, he turns to, to the present and the future. And Timothy's report was a great report. It was a happy report, but there's still work to be done, right? So we read first the last, first Thessalonians four, chapter one through eight. So, so here's some, here's some text comments on those verses. Okay. Before we kind of jump in to somewhat of a exegesis of the passage. So, so verses one and two. So, so when Paul says, finally, he's, he's indicated that the main section of the letter is concluded, but we should not read him saying that he's about to end the letter, just as he does at the beginning of Philippians chapter four, Paul says, finally, to mark a transition to a new subject. And that subject may be lengthy and it might be important. So that's, that's the first thing to note. Third, in, in, in verse 3, the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea, which in Paul's day would have referred primarily to prostitution, but also more broadly to any kind of sexual relation outside of marriage whether it was fornication, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, it didn't matter. Any sexual relationship outside of, of what we know as marriage, ordained Christian covenant marriage, 
um, was considered pornea. And for the average first citizen, century citizen of Thessalonica, especially for the men of Thessalonica, this would have been a very startling, very startling news. F.F. Bruce explains it like this. This was a strange notion in the pagan society to which the gospel was first brought. There were various forms of extramarital sexual union that were tolerated, and some were even encouraged. A man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, while casual gratification was readily available from a harlot. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. There was, there was no body of public opinion to, to discourage pornea, although someone who indulged in it maybe to excess might be satirized on sort of the same level as a notorious glutton or, an, or a notorious drunk. So the gospel comes, came to Thessalonica, and these two things were on a collision course. It's the standard of God's word and the prevailing views on sexuality in Thessalonica. So then we get to verse 4, and verse 4 pre- presents us with the most difficult exegetical question in the entire letter, one that has been the subject of a great number of articles, pages and pages and commentaries. Most of the discussion centers on the meaning of the Greek word Skeos, S-K-E-U-O-S, which literally means vessel. More compelling is the view that sees vessel as a metaphor for one's own body. And that is the way that the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, the New King James have all translated it. So that the sense it is, is that each one should possess or control his or her own body in holiness. In favor of this view is the fact that the verb can be translated as control or gain mastery over, and that vessel is used metaphorically for a person's body in several other New Testament texts and was recognized in in Greek culture. So this verse is addressed to the whole congregation, women as well as men. Calvin makes the same point. So in all likelihood, the point Paul is making is that each one, men and women, should control their own body. So the main point that I want to bring out in this scripture, in this text, is a simple one. And, and I think it's a rather obvious one. And it is this. A life that is pleasing to God is a life of holiness. Paul's purpose in writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is seen there in verse 1. He is asking, he is urging the Thessalonians to remember the instructions that he had given them. And those instructions concerned a life of holiness. The word holiness appears three times in the passage. In verse 3, where it is sometimes translated sanctification. In verse 4, Paul says that each one should control his own body in holiness and honor. And then in verse 7, Paul says God has called, not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Holiness is the key word in this passage. But what is holiness? Well, without going into all of the tremendously important Old Testament background in terms of God's holy presence in the tabernacle, uh, in the temple, and so on, we can very simply say that holiness is to be set apart to God. You see, we are to offer ourselves as entirely devoted to the Lord. William Still puts it this way in his book, The Work of the Pastor. He says this, Israel's sheep were reared, fed, tended, retrieved, healed, and restored 
for the purpose of sacrifice on the altar of God. This end of all pastoral work must never be forgotten. That its ultimate aim is to lead God's people to offer themselves up to him in total devotion of worship and service. In Paul's words from Romans 12, we present our bodies to the Lord as living sacrifices. We're to offer him lives that are set apart for his purposes. And this is a moment by moment choice. Am I going to submit to this authoritative word or am I going to live by my own authority? Am I going to please God or am I going to please myself? Am I going to make the choice that is honorable and holy or am I going to do whatever feels right? Whose whose will am I going to follow? His or mine. And that's the choice we face in every situation. I, I'm, am I going to give up my way of living so that I can learn God's way? That is the dynamic of holiness, to give up my way of being a human, to devote myself to his will. And obviously, obviously that's a matter that goes right into the deepest places of our hearts. The heart has to be out in front, leading the way with this desire for holiness. Because out of the heart comes behavior. And if we remember to ignore the chapter divisions, because, you know, they weren't there when Paul wrote this, we we see a key statement back in chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says that he prays for the Thessalonians that their hearts would be established blameless in holiness. Blameless is not sinlessness. We've talked about that several times. Blamelessness is acknowledging that there's something wrong and doing something about it. Being blameless in our holiness. The first thing that has to happen for a life of holiness is that our hearts must be offered to God. Calvin, describing a heart that is fully devoted to God, used this kind of illustration. He said that there must be no little hidden back shop, in quotes, where there's a sideline of business that's carried on with secret customers. You know, think like the movies. They always portray the mafia meetings. It's in a back room of a club or a restaurant. Well, Calvin is saying that a heart fully devoted to God doesn't have a back room. There's no hidden part where some other God reigns. We have have sort of a divided loyalty. So what are the ways we can cultivate this kind of impulse in our heart? Well, ultimately, it is the work of God's grace. But in terms of... Ordinary means that God uses to accomplishment, there, accomplish it, there are many ways that the hearts of, this, of us come alive to holiness. But I want to suggest that the most powerful way to cultivate this is to always look at the cross, to frequently, daily meditate on the cross, and to keep that vision constantly before us. I read an illustration from a pastor, and here it is. Picture this. So a man is in his living room. And he goes over to the entertainment center and, and, uh, or, or, and, he, and, he, and he turns on the, the stereo and some music plays. He put, puts in his iPhone and, and, and he's playing it through the Bluetooth and, and, and music begins to play. And, and the man begins to snap his fingers. He likes this music and he, he taps his toes. And well, he, soon he's, he finds himself, he's dancing. He begins to dance. Well, a second man comes into the room, a second person. Well, now the second person is deaf. He, he cannot hear the music, but he sees the other man tapping and swaying and it looks like fun. He thinks, hey, I'll try that. I'd like to do that. So he joins in. He emulates the other man's dance moves, tries to 
to get the same rhythm. At first it's difficult, but eventually he gets the hang of it, and the two of them are basically dancing in sync, doing the same thing together. Where after a while, the second man thinks to himself, well, this really isn't quite as much fun as I thought it was, but he keeps going. Well, now a third man comes into the room, and he's, he sees the two men, and he says to himself, they are doing the exact same thing. But he's actually wrong. They are not doing the exact same thing. The second man's dancing is different. And it probably will not last very long because, you see, he does not hear the music. His dancing is just movement, and it becomes tedious. But the first man's dancing comes from deep within him, out of his soul. As the music moves him, it compels him by its rhythm, by its beauty. Do we see the analogy? The dance moves are the conduct of the life of holiness. It's what people see. It's what we do. It's what we're judged on by a culture that loves to throw things at us that we're hypocrites based on how we act, based on what we say on Facebook, whatever. That's, that's the moves. The dance moves is the outward. The dance is the outward obedience the things that we are called to do with our minds and bodies as a holy offering to the Lord. But there has to be something compelling our hearts, inspiring us, captivating us, giving us the power to joyfully, joyfully offer ourselves to God. And unless our heart is captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ and he becomes our highest and deepest love and our ultimate loyalty, we might try, we might try to live a life of holiness, but it will probably end up being frustrating it will be tedious, it will be joy, joyless, and it will probably fade. Because friends, we have to hear the music. And I believe that the best way to hear the music is to fix our attention on the cross. You see, Paul doesn't explicitly mention the cross in chapter 4 here. But everything is is, is premised on the work of Jesus. And as he said in chapter one, that we, that we are waiting for God's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from wrath, from the wrath to come. The great Puritan pastor, John Owen, puts it like this, fill your affections with the cross of Christ, that there may be no room for sin. The joy of knowing what Jesus did for us on the cross is the antidote for sin because the essence of sin is when we are treasuring something more than our joy in Christ. We are seeking our satisfaction. I am seeking my, my satisfaction and my fulfillment in something or someone other than in my relationship with the Lord. That is why all sin at its root really has its heart in wanting, to, in wanting more of Jesus. When I sin, when I do certain things that, that are sinful at its root, really, that is an innate, God-given drive toward Jesus. But I'm filling it with something less. There's an old ad for a consulting company. It featured um, Phil Mickelson, the golfer, in the middle of his swing and a graphic showing the path or the arc of the ball as it, as it took, took off down the fairway. And along that path were the words, 80% improving yourself and 20% proving, proving yourself. Um, again, at, along, the, along the path of the, the, <clears throat> the arc of the ball, the, the ad, 80% improving yourself, 20% proving yourself. And at the bottom of the ad, it had the following statement. We know what it takes to be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. 
You see the idea, right? That Phil got to be the best, the GOAT, by 80% working on his game, his driving, his putting, so on. And then according to the ad, he needed a little extra boost. Well, that extra 20%, and he got that extra boost from his desire to prove to himself and to the world that he could be the greatest, or at least one of the greatest. Well, in the Christian life, when it comes to developing Christian maturity, being a man or woman of true holiness, we know better, but I sometimes live as though our progress in holiness is 80% self-improvement and 20% of some extra good works to prove myself, ourselves to God or to others. But the scripture teaches a very different equation. The equation for true holiness is 100%. And 100%. It is 100% the case that the thing that needed to be done has already been accomplished in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has done everything necessary to cover my sin, to cover our sin, and to give us access to the Holy Father and to God's presence. We have been declared by God to be holy in his sight because of our union with Jesus Christ, because we are in Christ. In that sense, we were made holy in a very definitive way. But there's also an ongoing process of being increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. And we call that sanctification. And it moves and it involves 100% effort. And that effort is fueled by the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ, who has given us a heart and want, that wants to please God. Are we actively engaged in the dance? Pursuing a life of holiness, putting sin to death, being alive to God's will, earnestly seeking to please him. And are we hearing the music when we dance? Do our feet move in response to the music of God's grace? Is the wonder and the mystery and the beauty and the power of the cross making its way into our soul on a regular basis? If it is not, I would suggest that our obedience, that my obedience will at some point become very joyless, it will become very tedious, and it will become a burden rather than a delight. And it will be very easy at that point to hang it all up. Now, I realize that some of us may be facing a different problem. Maybe we do hear the music, and it's so liberating and so moving that we think the dance moves don't really matter. I I really don't need to be so careful about the particulars of of my conduct. Well, I have to warn you, as Paul does, as Paul warns us, that God's wrath comes upon those who disregard his commands. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. First of all, just as Paul reminded the Thessalonians of the instructions he had given them, So also the Lord speaks to us today and calls us to this pursuit of holiness. So let me ask and urge us, not on my authority, but on the authority of Jesus Christ to get serious about a life of holiness. It is the way of deep joy. It is our great calling. See his love for us and give ourselves wholeheartedly to his commands. Amen, and God bless.